Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, and a happy Open an Umbrella Indoors Day to all of our listeners out there. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am your host for the Gestalt IT Rundown. We, each week, we bring you the news that is worth listening to um, in a short, bite-sized, 20-minute format. And uh, in order to make sure that we have the most accurate and representational view on the news, we have invited a great co-host this week. I would like to introduce the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Tom. It's good to be here. Um... We've uh, started a little late because it looks like Facebook is having problems. There's uh, many tweets to that effect. <laughs> Normally, this would be news. However, we all know Facebook uh, fail fast, fail often. So I think uh, we've got a lot of stuff we want to cover today, Stephen. Um, some interesting things have been going on in the news recently, and we want to start off with uh, with a couple of really big acquisitions. Uh, the first is uh, NVIDIA has agreed to acquire the networking chip and component maker Mellanox for $6.9 billion. Um, NVIDIA's offer is a 14% premium over the current stock price of $125 per share. The move would bolster NVIDIA's data center division, which has already tripled sales in the past three years and currently makes up about a third of the total company revenue. Reuters is reporting that NVIDIA outbid Intel in negotiations for Mellanox. The acquisition must now be approved by regulators before being finalized, which is a rumor that Intel may not have been able to clear regulatory hurdles. Um, this gives NVIDIA the Ethernet and InfiniBand solutions that are really going to start expanding in the data center as long as some chip fabrication. Um, is the Invini is NVIDIA really turned the corner? Are they a data center company now, Stephen? Well, yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to my friends over at Serve the Home. Um, they did a great write-up to that effect. Also, Greg Farrow did a good write-up about it. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, NVIDIA is looking to expand. I mean, they're already solid in the AI market. Um, they're absolutely looking for an expansion opportunity, and the data center is it. And so I am abs that's, that's exactly how I read this. Um, you know, Intel wanted it because they wanted it, but the problem is that maybe it would have been some conflict uh, in terms of concentration of power, concentration of technology. Um, you know, the thing is, NVIDIA had a big hole. Uh, they didn't have this stuff. And um, by adding Interconnect, uh, they now make the, they can make the whole stack, the whole data center server stack. Plus, there's some interesting concepts out there about, um, you know, combining uh, NVMe over fabrics, uh, PCIe over fabrics and doing some really cool stuff in terms of uh, the <clears throat> the uh, uh, graphics uh, processors that NVIDIA is also making. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this is a bold move for NVIDIA to basically kind of move into the, the data center coprocessor market um, as the revenues have increased with a lot of people programming directly for GPUs for things like high-performance computing. This is a kind of a natural fit for them, and it does give them a lot of capabilities to kind of uh, shed that image of, hey, we're just a graphics card company. And I'm very curious to see where they kind of take this. And it you know, is kind of fascinating that uh, Intel uh, either couldn't overcome the regulatory hurdles or had enough questions that the investors in Mellanox said, you know what, maybe this isn't going to be worth it for us. Yeah, and there were some other suitors. I actually wrote earlier in the year, there was a strong Microsoft rumor. Uh, that one sounded weird. So I wrote about that earlier uh, or last year. Um, but I think this one makes the most sense. Yeah, I would agree. So uh, good luck to all of our friends out there at Mellanox, and uh, we hope that you are enjoying all of those NVIDIA rewards that you'll be soon reaping. <laughs> uh, moving on to our next big acquisition, um, F5 Networks is a 
acquired Nginx for $670 million. The Nginx brand will stay in place, and CEO Gus Robertson will stick around as well. Uh, F5 has indicated they will continue Nginx's open source strategy, which is a huge part of what they do. I think someone said that Nginx basically powers the internet at this point. Um, F5 has suddenly uh, now suddenly finds itself in the web server business, picking up Nginx's 34% market share amongst the top 1 million websites. That's a lot of web servers. Um, combined with F5's extensive application services and security portfolio, how compelling is this for an end-to-end -end web and application suite going forward, Stephen? Yeah, I, I think this is um, a kind of a bold move, um, a very interesting one for F5, but it really does uh, it really does help them. I mean, as you mentioned, Nginx just has tremendous market share. Um, for what it's worth, um, every website that I run is uh, running through the open source version of Nginx. Uh, that being said, um, you know, I met with them at AWS reInvent last year and, um, you know, we've got some friends over there at Nginx and um, they are, you know, they have a, diff a different kind of business model. Um, you know, their pro uh, products are um, not exactly, you know, the open source thing, you know, and, and they've got some, you know, some really, really strong offerings there uh, for enterprises and for, um, you know, larger uh, websites and web services. Um, so, you know, I, I think that this is actually a great move, um, again, for uh, for F5, certainly. Um, and it will preserve, uh, you know, Nginx's, um, you know, growth in the enterprise space. Um, how, how do you feel, Tom? I mean, I think that this is an interesting pickup for F5, but I think they're, they're kind of seeding their own market. Um, you know, we, we're going to acquire Nginx, we're going to offer you services on top of this open source model, which is the replication of Red Hat. Um, and maybe if uh, your performance isn't up to snuff, hey, we've got one of these really awesome big IP boxes over here that will sell you that'll do the job really, really great. Um, it's not free and it's not open source, but you won't care at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think we should also mention that we're going to hear a little bit more about this in in April, right? That's right. Uh, Nginx is a sponsor of uh, the upcoming Cloud Field Day event that will be going on April 10th through the 12th in Silicon Valley. Um, if you want to learn a little bit more information about that, you can always head over to the website techfieldday.com, click on the link for Cloud Field Day. You can see all the great sponsors that are lined up there. But I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions for the Nginx folks to kind of understand where this F5 um, acquisition kind of fits into their roadmap plans and, and where, we gonna, where we're going to see things going forward since the brand is going to survive. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the uh, Nginx presentation, by the way, is Wednesday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific time on the on April 10th. Make sure you put that on your calendars, folks. That's going to be one you won't want to miss. Um, now, Stephen, the uh, the $65,536 question, which one of these is the bigger acquisition? Which one do you think is going to affect people more in the IT industry? Mellanox. Um, no. You know, I, I love Nginx. As I said, I everything I run goes through the open source version. Um, that being said, uh, you know, NVIDIA is making a play for the data center here. This is, um, you know, NVIDIA confronting Intel in one of, in Intel's home turf. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's massive. And uh, I mean, not to not to mention that the you know the acquisition cost is you know dramatically higher. What's that about seven times higher? But, you know, the, the market share, the impact of it is absolutely going to be, um, uh, you know, it, it really, really challenges Intel. Uh, you know, combine this with, uh, you know, AMD and their Epic processors, um, you know, um, I, I can't wait to hear what Intel's doing next. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I'm already seeing some social media marketing going out about the uh, the <clears throat> new NVIDIA pod that they're going to be selling uh, through companies like Dell EMC. Um, just imagine we went from uh, from you know Flex Pod to NVIDIA Pod. Sky's the limit for these people right now. I agree with you on the uh, on the positioning of this. Um, speaking of Intel, Stephen, um, looks like they're getting together to help with some standards. So a consortium that includes our friends at Intel, along with Microsoft, Alibaba, Cisco, Dell EMC, Facebook, Google, and Hewlett Packard Enterprise, along with Huawei, have ratified version 1.0 of the Compute Express Link, that's CXL, standard, which is a fast interconnect designed to remove bottlenecks between CPUs and accelerator chips. Um, the standard is built on top of PCI Express 5.0. Um, we'll add input-output protocols, memory protocols, and coherency interfaces. Um, this is an open standard, and it looks to compete with the CCIX, uh, NVIDIA's NVLink, and IBM's Open Cappy. Uh, right now, it's designed to speed memory sharing between GPUs and FPGAs in the data center. This kind of sounds like some of that Intel stuff we've been talking about and along with in, uh, NVIDIA as well. Um, is Intel and the company playing behind here, or is there enough weight in this consortium really to make this a dominant standard? Because we look at what the competing standards are, and they're all really focused on one company. This one has a lot of people under that umbrella. Is that going to be enough to get it over the hump? I think so. Um, you know, the important thing is that this is PCI Express. Um, you know, it, just like Ethernet is, is just incredibly dominant in the networking space, um, and the next generation, whatever is going to be called internet, you know, Ethernet, um, you know, mm -hmm. PCIe uh, is everywhere. Um, you know, I'm a storage guy, you know, PCIe storage is everywhere. Um, this is, uh, I don't want to say it's an earth shaking announcement. It just shows um, where we're going next with PCIe. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that that you're not really going to turn the the other uh, adherence to their own standards, NVIDIA probably being the biggest one now with their Mellanox acquisition that kind of gives them a little bit of clout. Um, that'll probably stay proprietary for a long time. Um, I think that this is just kind of formalizing some more... Um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Formalizing the the other players in the game into something that they can all agree on to compete against what will probably end up being the dominant play in the market. Um, a lot of this is going to have to come down to those other accelerator chips and FPGAs. Do they take off or is NVIDIA the 850-pound gorilla that's beating everybody up? And even if they don't take off, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is, it's PCIe. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it, it seems likely that this is going to happen in, uh, you know, regardless. And also look at the names. I mean, Alibaba, Facebook, Google, um, you know, these are companies that are absolutely, they're buying enough on their own to make this thing a success. Exactly. This is, this is not the, uh, the a league of non-aligned worlds. This is essentially everybody who's anybody in the cloud and, and hardware uh, acquisition space. All right, Stephen, uh, we, thank you for joining us today because we're going to introduce a brand new segment on uh, the Gestalt IT Rundown called Security Issues Caused by Stupid Defaults. Uh, we're going to come up with a really catchy name for it. But uh, there were a couple of stories that came out this week that uh, basically became issues because someone forgot to check their default settings. And the first one um, came from Citrix. So news broke this week that the FBI contacted Citrix on March 6th that an Iranian-linked hacker group, Iridium, had likely accessed the company's internal network. Oops. Um, security firm Resecurity Re says that they contacted Citrix as early as December 28th to warn of the attack and stated that their analysis shows up 
that up to six terabytes of internal email correspondence, files in network shares and other business documents were accessed. According to the Citrix CISO, Stan Black, the security of product, uh, products and services were not compromised, but that seems to be about the only thing that escaped. Um, the attack seems to have been primarily a brute force of weak passwords. Hey, how are those default password settings working out for you? Although it does look like the hackers were able to get around the two-factor authentication that was in place. So that could be another interesting aspect to this. Given that Citrix provides network access to a huge customer base, how are customers supposed to respond to this news? Well, you know, I, I mentioned this, uh, I think the last time I was in the rundown, it, it does not do to dance on the grave when your competitors are hacked because you know what? It could be you next time. Frankly, um, <clears throat> these things are happening again and again and again. I'm not trying to absolve Citrix here. All I'm trying to say is um, this is an all too common occurrence. In this case, as you said, um, you know, there, there was, uh, you know, mainly internal communication, but oh my gosh, think about how valuable that is. Um, mm -hmm. More valuable than, than attacking the product because now they own all these employees, theoretically, um, you know, they could get people's, uh, you know, information. And as far as two-factor, I think it's important to remember that two-factor is not two-factor is not two-factor. There's different ways of doing two-factor. And frankly, if your two-factor relies on SMS to your phone, um, that's not good. In fact, as we um, as we saw just this week, um, a friend of ours um, had a uh, phone number redirected um, in order to, in this case, in order to scam a store out of purchasing some phones. But um, that could just as easily have been used to crack into two-factor, um, two-factor using the phone uh, SMS. Um, that's how they do it. It's actually pretty easy to socially engineer somebody to to you know basically redirect a phone number somewhere, and once you got that you're in. Basically, if you're relying on two-factor uh, using SMS, well, it's it's not secure. I would agree, Stephen. And, and <clears throat> the fact that you can redirect a phone number or put something in place to kind of intercept those SMS messages um, is something that's known to security people right now. If you want to learn a little bit more about that, head over to techfieldday.com and check out our uh, the presentation from Cisco Duo at Security Field Day 1. Um, they're doing two-factor right. And by right, we mean not using SMS. But they go over a lot of those things. And, and the fact that once you can compromise one person inside of an organization, um, you're basically, you're going to own everything. That's why a lot of the companies that I, I talked to last week at RSA are, uh, they're going to this zero trust model. Everyone is suspect. We trust no one. And if we trust no one, we may not be able to present, prevent the next breach, but we can guarantee you that it won't get very far before we find it. All right, uh, moving on to our next story in the roundup of bad security defaults make for bad news. Um, Let's talk to Box. If you're using them for enterprise storage, you might want to go check those settings again. Uh, security firm Adversus found that dozens of companies were leaving files exposed on the service. While files on Box are private by default, they can be shared via links. Using a script with company names found wildcards in the URLs. The researchers found that 90 companies with public folders, including some who were Box employees, <laughs> some had been scraped by search engines. Uh, Adversus advised Box six months ago of the things that they had found. And then they decided, you know what, if you're not going to do anything, we'll try you in the court of public opinion. And they published all of their findings. Um, Box is now limiting link sharing to people within an organization by default. Um, is security by obscurity always a terrible idea, Stephen? Or is this on the organizations that decided to use Box? 
I think uh, this is on, uh, well, it's on both of them, I suppose, but um, security by obscurity is always a bad idea. Um, you know, and assuming that, um, you know, assuming that wide open defaults are good defaults is just so wrong. I, I, I just can't get over it. I mean, you know, you read this story and, and it's just, just kind of eye popping to see um, what, what, what uh, assumptions they made. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of companies are starting to use Box kind of as a more enterprise-friendly version of Dropbox, which is their biggest competitor. And uh, I saw a flash of a story earlier this week um, that had mentioned that someone had managed to find a whole bunch of files from Cisco on an open Box folder. I mean, this is kind of the uh, the sink and share version of open S3 buckets in AWS. Um, you never know what kind of gold mine you're going to find when you go digging for something. Yeah, absolutely. There was a great article, by the way, this week that I shared in my Twitter, if you can look for it. Um, Mesh uh, Kiesing over in Israel um, basically showed how quickly and easily it is to have your AWS keys um, slurped out of open source code, like how quick it would happen. And it was a really neat uh, experiment that he did. Yeah, and uh, Mesh is uh, an employee of CyberArk, which is a company that presented at Security Field Day One, and they actually had a great presentation about um, hiding those keys in places that they shouldn't be, because uh, if your AWS uh, API keys get out in the wild, it's literally a matter of seconds before somebody owns them. So Yeah, seconds. Definitely... I mean, people are looking. They're watching. Mm -hmm. It's it's very impressive. So uh, a lot of great content out there uh, for you to consume on that if you're security-focused. Um, speaking of security, we're going to round up the round out the rundown this week with a great security story. Um, Stephen, uh, before I continue, I'm going to need you to read the following privacy policy and click OK that you're going to accept the cookie that I'm going to put in your brain uh, for reading. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to click OK. Well, uh, if you do that, uh, you may find yourself in a little bit of trouble with the uh, the Europeans and the GDPR. The Dutch Data Protection Authority ruled that the so-called cookie wall which is essentially a demand that website visitors agree to add tracking to access content, uh, well, that violates GDPR. The regulator has committed to stepping up monitoring of violating sites and is actively contacting the most complained about organizations to come into compliance. The regulator clearly stated that opting in tracking must be a free choice by the user, not part of a data access scheme. The cookie wall was already an unintended side effect of the regulation, and we all know this because the day after GDPR went live, suddenly we have to agree to every cookie in the world. Um, is it appropriate that the whole death of this cookie wall thing is basically from GDPR since it was what caused it in the first place? Yeah, um, I mean, first, I got to say cookie wall and Dutch. I mean, you got Stroopwafels, you got Speculos. I mean, the Dutch know cookies. But that being said, um, I would eat through that cookie wall. But yeah, these cookie, it, it, who thought this was a good idea? Who thought that that just, you know, click OK to proceed and, and give up your GDPR rights? Who thought that was legal? Um, you know, it's just like it just boggles the mind. Unfortunately, like we said, it's kind of an unintended side effect of GDPR. But just like a lot of other companies that kind of rely on this money from ad revenues and tracking and things like that, just keep doing it until you get caught. And in this case, the Dutch uh, obviously had their finger on the pulse of people because the, they're going after the companies that are the most reported ones. Um, I would like to see this um, quietly shuffle off into the North Sea and pretend that we never saw it anymore because this this is not going to work. And, and uh, hopefully that will also bring down the whole, oh, we see you've turned on an ad blocker. We're not going to show you anything until you agree to whitelist us. That's next on my list. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, a lot of the folks in our community are using things like Pi-hole. Um, you know, personally, I use uh, you know one blocker uh, for OS, uh, Mac OS, and for iOS. Um, a lot of people are blocking this stuff anyway. Um, <clears throat> but it, you know, it just seems to me that the whole uh, the whole model, the whole ad-supported model, is is just fundamentally unsound. And you know, click to accept and 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 you know tracking and all this. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants tracking. Um, you know, and this of course leads to one big question that I'll have back to you, and that is, there's one company that their entire revenue is related to basically tracking users, violating their privacy, and serving them ads. Google, and mm -hmm. if um, you know, basically their entire business model is at risk based on this legal precedent is is it not it is and and google's already been smacked with a with a huge fine from the uh european union over gdpr violations um and huge relatively speaking i mean it was 50 million euros um which to you and i would 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 pretty much be a, a huge thing to google You're talking it's, about uh, i got that in my wallet you know, evidently they did too, because they're going to continue to do it. And I actually had this conversation with somebody at RSA this week. Um, uh, as mentioned on the rundown last week, Google or Alphabet actually has uh, created a Splunk competitor. And uh, a lot of people that I talked to, their first reaction was, there ain't no way I'm giving Google all of that information. And somebody actually decided to debate that with me. They're like, oh, well, you know that Google's going to keep that secure. And I looked at them and I said, are they? Well, they would never share that information with anything else because that's not what security people do. And I said, you do realize the siren call of ad revenue is too difficult for the people at Google to resist. It what used to be that difficult? Google stood for do not yeah. do no evil. And now it's, would you like to see an ad for evil? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is too, the best laid plans um, oftentimes go awry. You know, if you've got the data, you know, back to the breaches, if you've got the data, guess what, you know, somebody can get in there and somebody can see that eventually. Um, <clears throat> you know, we had another, uh, there was another breach this week as well. Uh, you know, a couple of my accounts were some kind of business verification service. Um, and I got the have I been pwned email from uh, my, my man, Trey, uh, Trey Hunt, and, um, you know, for two of my accounts, and I never even heard of this service. But I, you know, had a bunch of uh, information apparently included in it. Yeah, I think it comes back to the fact that you need to be aware of what you're doing. And if anything else, if GDPR ends up failing, I think the biggest takeaway that GDPR has given us is that we have to be more cognizant of the data that we're sharing. And we have to make sure that we know what we're agreeing to whenever we click on OK, because like you said, you never know where that email address is going to end up somewhere down the line. Yep. And, and as they said, it, it has to be a free choice. It has to be an actual choice. It can't be click okay to proceed or go somewhere else. You know what I mean? You know, there. anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, also cookies. <laughs> also cookies. Um, well, in that case, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up the rundown so that Steven and I can go enjoy some chocolate chip goodness. Um, if you missed any of this cookie time, by the way, so I, I am fully aware of this. I have an entire garage full of them that I've been resisting, but uh, you know, maybe they need to build a wall in front of those cookies for me. 
Um, if you've missed any of this episode or if you've missed any of our previous episodes, which we've referenced here in this show, make sure you head over to our YouTube channel. Um, you can just search uh, for Gestalt IT. It'll pull it up. We have a playlist of all the previous episodes that we've done. You can also see them here on Facebook where you're watching us live. And we appreciate all of you. Why don't you go ahead and drop our page a like? Uh, the more people that like it, the more people can watch the rundown and get to enjoy all of the fun, snarky cookie goodness that we give you every week, Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time, whether that's standard or daylight, depends on whether or not you're in Arizona. Um, you can also um, find out more information about what we do at gestaltit.com. We have a lot of great articles that we've been writing about things like RSA, uh, some of the events that we've been to, including our Tech Field Day event series. Um, I've been writing some articles there as well. And Stephen, you've written a lot of great articles there uh, recently. Where can people find out more information about some of the stuff that you're uh, interested in? Well, probably the best thing to do is just find me on Twitter at sfoskett. Um, as you mentioned, I'm uh, predominantly putting my enterprise content on gestaltit.com nowadays. Uh, I've also got a bunch of videos out there and um, you can find me as well at blog.foskets.net writing about more uh, nerdy uh, consumery stuff. Awesome. And if you don't already follow Steven on Twitter, you definitely should. And check out his Simlinks hashtag. He shares a lot of great content from around the community that everybody should be reading. A lot of the stories that um, you're hearing on the rundown this week were things that we saw in Steven's Simlink feed. Um, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about me, my Twitter handle is at Networking Nerd. That's usually the unfiltered snarkiness. Um, I also have a blog at NetworkingNerd.net, but I've got a lot of great enterprise content headed your way on GestaltIT.com in the coming weeks because I was at RSA last week. Um, and I have a lot of great security news, but shh, it's a secret to everyone unless you're a reader of gestaltit.com. Um, for Stephen Foskett, for Tom Hollingsworth, for the rest of the folks at Gestalt IT, and for all of you out there, our lovely listening audience, we want to wish you a happy Earmuffs Day and have a super sparkly day.